Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast down deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your co-host. And I'm Kyle Pietrantonio, and today we have the pleasure of talking with Emily Cavins, an archaeologist, author, speaker, and editor with Ascension Press. She received her B.A. in Classical and Near Eastern Archaeology from the University of Minnesota and has participated in several excavations in Israel. Emily, with her husband Jeff, leads annual pilgrimages to Israel and other Bible-related destinations such as Turkey, Greece, Italy, Jordan, and Egypt. She's the author of Lily of the Mohawks, uh, the story of St. Uh, Kateri, the first Native American saint from North America, who was canonized in October 2012. She has al also authored A Pilgrim's Guide to the Holy Sepulchre in Golgotha in Jerusalem, and My Heart is a Violin, the autobiography of a renowned uh, violinist and composer and Holocaust survivor Shoni Alex Braun. Emily has worked with Ascension as co-editor of Amazing Grace for Mothers, containing over 100 stories of faith, hope, inspiration, and humor. She's developed the Great Adventure Kids Bible Study materials that center around teaching children the path of salvation history based on her husband Jeff's story of salvation, a journey through the Bible. She's also co-written co the Great Adventure Storybook, A Walk Through the Catholic Bible, which is a part of a 24-week program of games, activities, stories, and lessons. She participated in co-writing The Walking Toward Eternity, Making Choices for Today, Bible Study Series 1 and 2 with her husband, Jeff. Emily and her husband, Jeff, of 40 years, are the proud parents of three daughters, Carly, Jacqueline, and uh, Antonia, and grandparents of three, Dominic, Francesco, and Fiona. Uh, Emily, welcome to Follow to Lead. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, Emily, we're really glad to have you with us today. You know, just a, a few weeks ago, we had Jeff on the program, and it was uh, we we told him at that time we desperately wanted to have you on as well because <laughs> you also have some exciting things uh, to share with us here on Follow to Lead. Now, you and your family currently live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Is that where you're from, from originally? Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Oh, sure. Yeah, I was raised in St. Paul. And uh, actually, my father uh, is came from Switzerland, and uh, my mom met him in college. 
And so for many years, uh, several years before I was born, they had lived in Switzerland and they came back, settled in St. Paul. And so I was born there and we were, I was not raised Catholic. My parents were um, uh, a lot of different things. Actually, we went through several different uh, denominations and finally ended up, my mom became a Methodist minister um, when she, by the time she became, I think she was 60. She, so she went to school late in life too. That's kind of what I'm doing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so she was ordained a Methodist pastor. And then, uh, so I grew up learning a little bit about everything. And when then after Jeff uh, converted back into the Catholic church, I went through the RCIA program at uh, Franciscan university. And um, so I had a good good Catholic training there. And so that was back in 1996. So, and since then I have been learning all about the Catholic church and yeah, I I don't even remember the old days anymore. (laughs) Now, uh, you and Jeff were in Protestant ministry in churches. I, I, was it in Ohio? Yeah. Okay. I think we were five years or so in Dayton, Ohio in the early nineties. And then before that, we were in uh, Bloomington. That's uh, a suburb of the Minneapolis area for like five or six years there, too. So and yeah, so Jeff was raised Catholic and he came when he met me. I, I was a evangelical. And so I, I he followed me where I was going. And then after we had pastored for several years and kind of realized it's kind of out there. Well, and then we met. Well, Jeff met Randy, Father Randy, and he's kind of part of getting us into, well, he wasn't even Catholic at the time. No, no. Meeting him led us to the Catholic Church eventually, and then he came after. So we have a nice little uh, connection that way. Absolutely. And uh, I, I can still remember the excitement when I was received into the church to call Jeff and say, I made it. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so that was kind of fun. Well, it was pretty amazing. I mean, the, the organization that you were involved in really was a big stepping stone to what we were looking for. We, you know, realizing that when you're, you have no backing of anyone in the, in a independent Protestant church, like there are so many of out there now, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really based on the personality of the person and the talents of that person. And if that falls apart, then, mm-hmm. or if somebody disagrees with you, et cetera, et cetera, it's very, very difficult. And so meeting up with, uh, just a liturgical, uh, way of looking at things was our first step into getting, getting back home for Jeff. And then for me, converting. Uh, Emily, we we had Jeff on the show not that long ago, and um, we didn't have a chance to ask just about you know your own. You have three daughters, and and how they came into the faith. Where were you and Jeff at that point, and and how did they get um, uh, exposed to the Catholic faith? And tell us a little bit about their upbringing in the faith. Sure. Well, when I went through RCIA, our oldest or only child at the time, she was eleven, and so they did a little mini kid version of the RCIA. And so she came in with me at the same time. And um, so she, 
I mean, she was very happy to be. And we, our explanation to her was that, you know, when we pass away, we want there still to be a church left for you to be part of, you know? Mm -hmm. And so thank, thankfully, I mean, I'm really very, very happy that she embraced it so much. And, and she actually met uh, her husband going to World Youth Day at, to see uh, Pope John Paul II in Toronto. And so, Good. so they met and uh, now they, and they got married several years later. So that, that was exciting. And then while, while Jeff was at EWTN uh, doing My Life on the Rock uh, in the early or the late 90s, then we uh, adopted two children, two girls from when, while we were living in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so they, they came along as Catholics. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's great. Now, uh, in Protestant, in the Protestant years that you spent, you and Jeff were both involved in ministry, and then you came into the, the Catholic church. So uh, did it take a while for you to kind of find your place in ministry in your new Catholic world? Um, well, I guess, I, truth be told, I, I never wanted to be a pastor's wife. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so when he converted, I wasn't, I wasn't crushed that I didn't have to be the pastor's wife anymore. Right. Um, but all along, while, while he was a pastor, I was, did children's ministry. So I wrote my own kids curriculum and a lot of it did follow the Bible timeline, like, uh, Jeff, has for, further developed into the Catholic Church. He originally started it while we were young in our early 20s. And mm -hmm. so I based a lot of uh, the children's program off of learning the Bible. That was kind of, that was the main focus. So I was involved in, in mostly children's teaching. Okay. Yeah. So I guess when, when you come in, when I came into the Catholic Church, it kind of slid right into the same, you know, I, mm -hmm. I was teaching our kids and involved in our uh, parish and they, they were developing a curriculum, a homeschooling curriculum at the time. And yeah, I guess I've always just sort of dabbled in, in that. And then recently, I think you mentioned in the bio about um, the uh, great adventure children's storybook, which has uh, Ascension press has now developed into a full curriculum and it's called GPS, God's plan in scripture. And so that works in schools and faith formation and all types of uh, uh, ways. And so, yeah, so that's been really great to see. It's kind of, uh, <laughs> it's like all those years put into it and mm -hmm. it's now a really good tool for teaching scripture to kids. Emily, yeah, you would love to hear a little bit more about how that all came about. You know, Jeff shared a little bit about you know his great work with the uh, Great Adventure Bible Timeline, and 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 then you wanting to adapt uh, a version for for young people. Tell us a little bit about that journey and um, and 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 what it entails. Sure. Um, yeah, maybe it's probably more than you'd want to know about it. But I'll, <laughs> well, Jeff was teaching the Great Adventure Timeline to uh, Bible studies in locally in the Minneapolis St. Paul area before it was all on video. And I mean, that was the constant question when when is something going to come out for children? And 
when, when, you know, cause if I had known this, when I was a kid, I wouldn't be struggling so much to know my faith. I would have understood all this. And so another woman, her name was Lisa was in that Bible study and she, she's a real strong educator. She's been a faith formation director and also a convert. And she came to me and said, we've, we've got to do this for kids. And I said, well, if you're willing to do it with me, I, uh, you know, great. And so then she had a couple of other friends she pulled in. So there was four women and we all lived, you know, relatively close. And so at first it was a long, a lot of iterations of it. And Ascension Press was fairly involved at the beginning, but then they made, went through some changes and said, no, we're not going to go. We're not going to have a children's department. So then we said, okay, let's take at least one part of it and self-publish it. So we self-published it. And once it was all together, we, what we did is we took the chronological stories of the Bible, and then we inserted all the Catholic connections, like where the sacraments come in, where does the rosary quotes, where's the creed. And so it's kind of like a little linear catechism at the same time. And so once, it, once our, what we had in our mind was put into something, then it was easier for, it's easier for a publisher to look at it and say, oh, I get it. And so Ascension took it back and, and published it. And now they've got um, a whole curriculum and everything that goes with it. So, yeah, so that took about, yeah, we tested it on our kids and now we have it for our grandkids 20 years later. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, has that been used at all in schools? as a part of their curriculum? Yeah, actually, um, the Dominican sisters in Ann Arbor, they, uh, they developed, they, they took it on and took it as part of their curriculum and they kind of molded in with some of their own uh, teachings and the way they work. But yeah, they, they loved it. They used it. And what they had as like, you could also do this in, in, in as a supplemental part to school where you have it a family reading program where you just take the, the storybook and not necessarily all the rest of the curriculum. And, you know, before you go to bed, you read like you do storybooks and you read through that. And if you read it every night, you know, it would take you six months in a school year, you could easily read it. And, you know, they had a little, the, the Dominicans, they would have a little shrine that you put it on and, you know, to, respect and revere the scripture and talk about its importance. And then, you know, as a family read through it. And uh, so that's one of many different ways that people have implemented in all kinds of ways. We had Jeff at our uh, Duke and Altum school summit a couple of years ago, Emily, when we were in your neck of the woods at Providence Academy, uh, who play, uh, was a gracious host. Uh, we would love to have you at an upcoming summit, uh, uh, one of these Octobers, uh, where oh, yeah. you can share uh, uh, with our um, faculties and, and theology teams, campus ministry teams, and school leaders about, about this program. I think there'd be quite an appetite for, for what you've done. Oh, great. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks. You know, uh, Emily, one of the things that uh, I saw that you had done is, of course, is you wrote Lily of the Mohawks about St. Kateri. And uh, what what is it that drew you to this amazing saint? And it, I think you wrote it just after her canonization about the next year. Right. Yes. Well, I, um, 
guess I've always been fascinated with uh, Native Americans uh, all my life. I've been actually I did some ancestry and I have uh, Native American ancestry back in Boston, Massachusetts. My would have been, I don't know, seventh great grandmother. And but I think they were it, this I found out after I had written the book on St. Kateria and what uh, St. Kateria is in the, like 1650. And a lot of the Native Americans had converted to by the Jesuits and they had they would put their towns next to like the mission and they would have an like an Indian entire village hooked on and they would go to mass. And it was like a little early church kind of a situation that their whole life revolved around uh, their faith, which was beautiful. And so St. Kateri was part of that. But what I found out is that that's probably where uh, my great grandmother would have been also in one of these Christian praying towns of converted, probably Algonquin in the Boston area. So I thought, well, that's really interesting that I didn't even know that about my heritage. And yet, um, so Mm -hmm. anyway, so I, and also being in archaeology, I was fascinated with looking at the Native American mounds and seeing where she heard different homes where uh, St. Kateri had lived with the Mohawks in round Albany, New York. So mm-hmm. I guess I, I was approached by um, uh, Franciscan media. I think, are they still called that? It was servant books at the time now as Franciscan media. And they do a lot of uh, books for on saints. And I guess one of the editors knew I'd written some books and asked me if I was interested. And I said, yeah. So I spent a good time researching all that. And I, I took a best friend from high school who teaches at uh, some Native American schools. And we went out to New York and tromped all around, went to all the shrines. And yeah, that, that would make a really good educational pilgrimage for a family sometime going out there, visiting the shrines mm-hmm. of the North American martyrs. And then going up into Montreal, that's where she's buried because that that that's where the uh, after she converted and left uh, the New York area, she went to Montreal because mm-hmm. that's where the uh, the Christian Mohawks were uh, safe from and and could live as Christians there. Do you have any takeaways from her life that uh, you really could see applying? Uh, to today's world and the things that we're going through? Well, yeah. And, you know, she, her life was a lot of reparation. She was really big on reparation for the sins of her people. Um, And I, uh, you know, I, so I've taken that to heart in praying in reparation for the sins of our culture and our world and um, I get a little choked up. And then I also also do feel that, um, you know, helping Americans see a little bit about what the United States did to Native Americans and mm-hmm. not apologizing. And I think that's something that is something to be to pray about that our our country Canada has apologized for its mistreatment of Native Americans, but the United States officially never has, which seems really pretty shocking for the climate mm-hmm. that we're in today. That nobody acknowledges the displacement and mistreatment 
of so many of these people. But it is kind of a blessing to see there are a lot of um, ministries to the Native American to the Native American people that really are um, very helpful. A lot of Catholic mm-hmm. uh, places that are really doing a great job helping and evangelizing and and teaching the young people. A lot of good schools. Mm-hmm. I know here in Kansas City, this was back the last time that I lived here about twenty years ago. And we did have a citywide um, service that was ecumenical hmm. uh, for reparation to uh, the Native Americans. And we had a number of uh, representatives of different Native American tribes from Oklahoma and Kansas, uh, Missouri, that, that came together with us. And it was really powerful. Wow, that's beautiful. That's really nice to know because uh, I, I haven't been, you know, I haven't seen any of that particularly mm-hmm. Uh, Minnesota has a quite a large amount of Native American. We have a lot of re- reservations, and but um, yeah, I I, it, I haven't ever seen anything like that, like that. That would be beautiful. It's timely, Emily. Our family took a, a lengthy road trip this summer out west, uh, and we were in Wyoming and, and South Dakota uh, for for a few weeks, and uh, it was a great platform to educate our own uh, children um, about uh, our country's, um, you know, history with some of the poor uh, treatment uh, of, of our Native American uh, brothers and sisters um, who were the original settlers to this land, right? And um, we also spent um, a full day at the Crazy Horse um, Monument there in, in South Dakota. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to, to visit, uh, it's, it's certainly worth seeing. And, um, uh, you know, and, and I know there's some controversy around it, but, um, you know, I walked away just with a deep appreciation, understanding, you know, the story, the plight of um, the Native Americans in that area um, and what, you know, this particular family without any federal funding and assistance is trying to do to honor their legacy and their memory. Right. Um, yeah. And- that's, that's beautiful. I got a chance to visit that too. And you're right. It, it gives a different perspective. You know, speaking of uh, the different challenges that have been faced both by Native Americans and by others, one of the things that I've been thinking about is the, the last 18 months here in America for everybody and how crazy it's been. We've had um, the challenges from uh, not only the coronavirus, but also uh, racial tension, uh, a global pandemic, obviously, uh, with the coronavirus, and then uh, hotly contested national elections and the politicizing of things. Um, as, as you've gone through that uh, in your own personal ministry, what have been some of the adjustments or things that you've experienced? Well, being in Minneapolis, we were kind of at ground zero for a lot of what went on. And so it was quite, uh, I mean, so wrenching to, uh, and, and frightening at the same time. I think uh, there definitely has been a shift in, um, uh, I don't know, maybe even heightened of political correctness that is you're, you're never sure what line you've crossed and when you might be 
whatever word came out of your mouth could be used against you because tomorrow it might not be the right word. So mm-hmm. everybody seems to be walking on eggshells more than, or, or at least aware of it than uh, previously. Our, our youngest two children uh, that we uh, adopted when uh, back in the early nine, uh, late nineties, they're both uh, African-American. And so it has led to a lot of, um, you know, dialogue and different uh, perspectives in our family that we never, you know, had faced before. And, per, you know, I, I, our children didn't really, they weren't particularly drawn to anything that was African-American, even though we tried to expose them to, to go to African mass or that type of thing. But, you know, but that now as they're a young adults, they're seeing, oh, maybe we should have paid attention to some of our, you know, our, what our birth families are experienced, et cetera. And so it's been, it, it got a little bit uh, contentious even, you know, because it's just so, you know, so I guess you'd want to say black and white about things. And mm-hmm. so we've, we've seen a huge huge shift here in Minneapolis. It is besides um, not so much the racial issues, but just crime in general has skyrocketed. And it is, um, it's quite a, it's, it seems like every time you get together with anyone and talk about anything, that's what you're talking about is all the things you mentioned, uh, all these things that have changed in the past Mm -hmm. two years. And how do you deal with that? And what do you how do you keep your children encouraged rather than feeling hopeless about all of this? Because the, and then, then you get to throw in climate change in there too. Mm-hmm. And these young people are terrified that the world is being destroyed. And by the time they get to be our age, they'll be burnt off the face of the earth if they don't do something. So the, they have a huge weight on them that they're responsible now for taking care of all the problems apparently we've, we've created. And um, so how do you, how do you teach hope in that? And that's what they really, really need is teaching the hope of the gospel that we aren't part of this political system. We are part of the kingdom of God. And what the, the currency there is love. The currency there is forgiveness and the, the laws are completely different than what you're seeing playing out in front of you. And that's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Emily, as you look toward the world of Catholic education and Catholic schools, you kind of alluded to them being a, a beacon of, of hope, uh, which we all should aspire to in the ministry of, of Catholic education as being an instrument of hope for our young people. Looking at the teachers in our school, um, and, and this world, uh, that we're in and, and them ministering to young people, what do you see as, as really critical tools in their toolboxes that they need, uh, as they accompany our young people today in our Catholic schools? Well, one thing that I have been really, um, dealing with, I guess you'd say, I, I've been, I'm in a master's program and, in archaeology and Bible history. And one of the things that were that comes up quite often in classes is why, why when something is dug up 
out of the ground and really reflects the biblical world. Why don't people look at that as, uh, as uh, bolstering the truth of the scripture? Why, mm-hmm. why doesn't mm-hmm. academia say, oh, that's really great. It fits in here. Instead, academia says, well, that's not true because those Bible stories aren't true. Genesis is fiction. If you throw out Genesis as fiction, then no matter what you dig out of the ground, it's irrelevant because it doesn't connect to reality. And so I think what higher criticism has done to the scripture and the in the Catholic church as well, and what people teach in religion classes has undermined the faith of kids more than most anything else. Um, because if you are taking the, the stance of the higher criticism, which denies miracles, and if they deny miracles, then how can you say the body and blood of Christ is Jesus, that miracle? And, and I, I feel like higher criticism, its entire goal was to come against the church and undermine it. If they can prove that the Bible's not true, that miracles don't happen, then what is, what, why have a church? <laughs> That's what we're based on. We're based on the resurrection. We're based on the truth of the scripture. And right. if we can't show our kids that it's true, you're not going to impress them one bit. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I don't know, I've kind of, my latest thing I really want to do is develop something for junior high that would you know, throw out that skeptical stuff that was drummed up 150 years ago. And people have clung to that uh, documentary hypothesis and all these things that are on are completely a theory. They're not scientific. You can't back up any of that stuff. And yet, it, it's prevalent in the Christian world that, oh, well, yeah, Genesis, yeah, that's just a bunch of stories and this, that, and the other thing. Right. And, and once, you're, once you've gotten to that point, then how do you, how do you instill faith? And, and same with evolution. Evolution is based on a theory 150 years ago, not based on any science. And now you have DNA, you have coding in each cell. I mean, you, you got to look at that and that has to be in that has to be taught that this stuff that we've been raised on is not scientific. It's not scientific and, and move into (laughs) use science for real for the Christians and prove that you can't, you can't evolve certain things out of one other thing. It doesn't scientifically happen. And my favorite thing is, Okay, when in the history of billions of years did the principle of chance change? Why did chance work billions of years ago? But when you get to now, it doesn't. You can't randomly create anything. So where did that happen? Where did it change? Let's use the scientific principles that we have today and extend it backwards to make sense of all of it. And mm-hmm. they don't have, they don't have scientific good answers, but yet that's what we're teaching. So 
somehow we have to get back, bring people's minds into the reality of God spoke to us in the Bible and it was truth. It was real. The miracles happened and these people existed and they existed in order to pass on the Bible to us and Jesus. That That's the whole bottom line. And if nobody understands that, you don't have a basis for anything you know. It's in my humble opinion. Yeah. It's interesting, <laughs> isn't it, that um, the assumptions have changed. The assumption when I was young is the Bible is true. And so when we find things in archaeology that support it, it just validates. And then, but if the assumption is the scripture is false, then uh, what we find doesn't have any relevance. So that is, that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's what our, that's what people learn. Yeah, I assume in seminary, they learn it in everything. I mean, my own, my, the kids, my kids, my younger kids, I mean, that was what they learned in Catholic high school as well in the religion classes, you know? So it's out there in, in these schools that that's, but yeah, I think it is, I, I feel that it's kind of that whole movement of documentary hypothesis, et cetera, is kind of dying off with the older scholars and the newer, younger mm-hmm. ones have a different view of it all. And so I'm hoping that the newer, you know, people are more open-minded to real truth rather than trying to feel elite by saying what these great scholars have been saying for a hundred years, you know, be open-minded and look at the facts of what we have today. We have so much more information in all sorts of fields that you got to study that. Don't study the ideological bubble. Look at what you're, what's really out there. I'm curious, Emily, with all your archeological interests and background and and some of the pilgrimage work uh, you've done, for a novice listening, where would you recommend uh, someone uh, go for an initial uh, experience um, in, in some of the archaeological history of our faith? Well, I would think, yeah, I, um, any pilgrimage to the Holy Land, they'll take you to several of them. And the guides, you know, they know the history of a lot of those things. The biggest one, of course, for Christians is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, mm-hmm. where that's the church that holds the uh, tomb of Christ in Golgotha, where he was crucified, all under the same roof. And I I have done a pilgrimage guide about that particular site archaeologically through the different phases of when it was Jesus' tomb up into what it is today. Because if you go in there now, you can't really make heads or tail of what you're looking at. Um, But it's a very highly significant site. So that's a definite place to visit. But uh, there are, uh, Israel now is, they have so many archaeological digs. If anybody's interested in digging, there's Mm -hmm. many, many places you could do it. But um, I I don't know how much time I have, but I could get super sidetracked by telling you about... (laughs) My most we'll have to we'll have to do a follow up episode, Emily, on on all of this. Um, You know, back to your point about you know the needs of our Catholic high schools and our our students and our faculty. I was at a school for sixteen years that did a a tremendous capstone trip to Rome um, for our seniors uh, before they graduated, and it really crystallized for them 
um, in 3D, all that they had been learning uh, for the past several years leading up to that trip. Um, and it's a tremendous conversion and reversion experience for many of them. Um, and uh, I, I almost wonder if more of our, our schools, whether it's to Rome or to the Holy Land or both, if that ought to be um, uh, kind of a component or, or a requirement um, as a way to solidify their faith before launching out of the nest uh, into higher ed, whereas you alluded to, you know, the academy is all about speculation largely. I mean, we've got some faithful colleges that will cement our young people's understanding of the faith and, and their journey on it. But by and large, you want them rock solid as 18-year-olds leaving. Um, and, and just thoughts on, on kind of some experiential requirements uh, in, in our high schools, perhaps. Yeah, I, I agree that you, it, it doesn't seem like a, a fantasy story when you're walking on the actual ground and right, where right. You, you read about in the Bible, oh, that is actually right here, <laughs> and that is right here, and yep. here, and here, and, and you can see that people have been there all that time. Everything that the Bible says, there were people doing those things, <laughs> that type of stuff all through um, the, the Bronze Age and Iron Age, etc. And yeah, I think that there, that experience is um, really important. I, I mean, I, it really depends on where the students are at personally too, because sometimes sure. you can bring people and it doesn't relate at all. But I think, um, I mean, they're looking at it as a vacation or whatever, and they're not really into learning about it. So, I mean, I can't say that every experience will totally, you know, sure. going there will bring that to mind. But I think if it's done in the right way and really those points are brought out, yeah, mm -hmm, yep. it, it would be, it would be good. One of the things that uh, we've noted uh, recently, uh, the National Catholic Education Association put out a report that kind of showed the decline going on in Catholic education today. And uh, we're seeing metrics, of course, in the, in the American Catholic Church that are uh, not very hopeful at this time. And uh, just thinking about those that are leading in Catholic schools, those that are in the trenches, those who are leading in ministries and parishes um, and, and building on, on uh, the need for a, a substantial faith. Emily, what, what advice or what counsel would you give to those who are really trying to make a difference like you're talking about? What would you, what would you do to encourage them? Well, that's a good question. Well, I would say trying not to listen to too much of the voices of today. It's just too overwhelming. You'd be discouraged. One thing that I may probably Jeff mentioned it when he was talking is this Bible in a year podcast where you listen to the scripture every day and get a little bit of encouragement. And there's nothing better than soaking yourself in, in your faith. If there's other, you know, I think there's an app, Halloway app has tons right. of things that are so helpful that different novenas to do things that keep your mind on track of your, of your goal rather than getting bogged down in the, the desperate feeling of our climate. 
and just finding things that are hopeful and passing on hope because that's what that's ultimately what our message should be is hope hope in uh, the future hope uh, with Christ in eternity and what do you do to get there and help other people get there so if that's part of your um your personality it'll come through in all the things that you're teaching you know i think mm-hmm. So really building up yourself in the faith is, is such a critical component to everything we do, whether you're a, a teacher, leader, or, or just the average person in an average world, right? I mean, that's that's really critical, yeah. Emily, I have to ask the, the, the portrait you have for the those listening who are viewing the video version of this will see this beautiful uh, painting of JP2 uh, over your shoulder, who's the patron saint of, of, of DIA. Uh, did, uh, who's the artist? Do you have any story behind um, that piece? I, someone gave it to us and Jeff knows more than I do. And I, I, that's from the, uh, world youth day in Toronto, I believe when the storm was coming and then he, he prayed and it cleared up. And so that's what that is. And it has his, uh, his garment blowing out to the side and, I don't know. You could. I'll, to, I'll uh, ask Jeff who it is. But it's something. Yeah, I've seen that 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 photo. It's an iconic photo. Um, uh, and but I've never seen a painting done of it. It's it's really really uh, striking. Yeah. Well, I could see if if there's a there's probably more of them. Let me see if it's got a signature. It might be a Susan Stedman. I'm not sure, but I'll I'll think I can double check with Jeff. But yeah, it's okay. gorgeous. That's yeah, great. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, Emily, we want to just thank you so much for being with us today. And, and as, as uh, Kyle said, we really want to get you back and kind of dig deeper into a few things that we've been sharing today, but thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. This was a treat. Thank you. And uh, for our viewers and listeners, if you haven't done it already, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and be sure to leave us uh, a comment to encourage us on our future programs. We do want to thank our production interns, Alex Shire and Hunter Ruiz, along with our production supervisor, Mr. Jack Alsbach, for producing this podcast. And may Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.